0: everybody welcome to the may 2019 mark Leverage podcast lovely to have you along as always i'm recording this just before easter and uh, the weather has taken in the uk a sudden turn for the better and it's promised that over the easter weekend it's going to be actually very summer like so i'm sure the roads will be jammed and people will be getting red skin in the sun uh, and all because we think it suddenly becomes summer towards the end of april Hmm. I'm sure we're going to have snow at the beginning of May just to make up for it. Anyway, it's great to have you along. And I've got a number of, as usual, of uh, hopefully interesting topics to chat to you about. And I want to start by um, talking a little bit about Yuri Geller. Now, I I noted with a certain amount of amusement, really, his claim recently that um, he was going to use his powers to stop Brexit from happening. And that he was also going to use said powers to uh, prevent Jeremy Corbyn from getting into number 10. And it led me to wonder, why would anybody want to make public claims like that? Because, first of all, they're impossible to substantiate. You know, if Brexit does for any reason fail, he will obviously take a lot of... He will try and take the credit for it. But everybody knows that it's actually nothing to do with Uri Geller, whether Brexit succeeds or fails. And similarly, whether Jeremy Corbyn eventually gets into number 10 or not, he can take credit for it. But nobody in in their right mind is going to believe that he had, again, anything to do with it. So I sort of think to myself, well, why would you want to put that out there? Why would you want to potentially open yourself up for ridicule, really? And I wonder whether it's not so much that he believes his own publicity, but really more that he sees an eye for a chance, a way to get into the media, whether it's online media or printed media, by making outrageous claims that it's hard for anybody to say or refute at the time, because the thing hasn't actually happened yet, of course. And by the time it has happened, chances are they were forgotten what he said in the first place. And so he thinks, well, it'll get me in the papers, it'll get me on, on the sort of various blogs I'm talking about it you know this is an example of how these stories and these myths are created and perpetuated by those people in the media generally but I have to say that I I, I really can't understand why you would need to do that I mean Uri Geller is a world-renowned name ever since he certainly in the UK when he first burst onto the scene here in the mid-70s went on Michael Parkinson and bent spoons and forks for the first time and there there was a lot of hype around him at the time then and you could see in a way how clever it was because he was trying to make out and he wrote a book or had a book written about it all, how he was in contact with people from outer of space and all this other wild stuff and and it was very entertaining especially I think for magicians looking on and saying wow this guy's got got a completely different approach to getting himself into the media spotlight. Uh, And we all, I suspect, had a sneaking regard for the the, the sort of cojones that he had to do it because it it takes a lot of courage. And he was very good at, at doing the bending. And, of course, nobody else was doing anything like it at the time, as far as I was aware. So he came along, did something completely different, got a lot of publicity, made wild claims... And was big box office, and has really on and off been box office ever since. For instance, I noticed that the Blackpool Magicians Convention have just booked him to do um, a question and answer thing at the convention in in uh, twenty twenty. So he still has currency. So, given all of that, and, and given that I mean, people like James Randi spent years trying to prove that Yuri Geller was a fraud. He really, really didn't like the fact that he was making these wild claims. And while, obviously, personally, I wouldn't ever bother to go that far, I do find it strange that he would actually say things that he's said in the past and is still continuing to say them in order, to presumably, simply to get into the into the spotlight. I cannot believe he genuinely thinks that he can do these, these amazing things. Uh, I certainly hope that he doesn't because uh, the chance of him actually being able to do it, of course, are fairly remote. But um, he's nevertheless, I guess, an interesting personality. And I'm sure when he comes to Blackpool, um, they, they're going to put it in one of the big, big rooms because they just want that, you know, hundreds and hundreds and possibly even thousands of people are going to want to get in to listen to him. So I suppose you could say that, well, they always say it, no publicity is bad publicity. I don't happen to believe that. I'm sure there is a lot of publicity that is very bad that you really don't want to be said about you. But nevertheless, it's going to get a lot of people interested in him. So I suppose that must be the single and sole reason why he does it. I was chatting on the phone to my good friend Paul Prager the other day. We often have quite long conversations about magic over the phone and all sorts of topics come up uh, during our discussions. And there was one topic that I'm going to talk about now that came up in our chat recently. And it was something that I'd never really thought about before until we ended up realising it during our discussion. And it's all to do with um, the way you are viewed as an entertainer when you're an adult entertainer, uh, depending on uh, the type of show that it is. So let me explain what I mean. Most of the time when we go out to work, we have been booked by either an individual or a company or an organisation who pays you to come along and entertain their guests. So, you know, the bride and groom book you to come and entertain the wedding guests, the, the, uh, the company gets you to come along and entertain round the tables at their Christmas do and so on and so forth. Sometimes we are the centre of attention, such as if you do a private party in somebody's house and you're doing an hour of close-up for them, perhaps to everybody at the same time, there may be only a dozen people there. I love those types of show. Um, But somebody has paid you to come along and entertain those dozen people and they see you as the, broadly, although they don't think about it I guess, but they see you as the hired help. You're the person who comes along. There's somebody else who's been booked to come along and do the catering, perhaps. And you've come along to do the magic. So they haven't actually made a decision to come out for the evening to see you specifically. You happen to be at an event to which they have been invited. Now, you compare that to where you're doing, let's say, a one-man show or you have, and there are many people doing this on the circuit at the moment, where you have a show where people are paying specifically for a seat to come and watch you entertain. They know who you are, or they read about you, or they're interested in you, so they shell out their money in order to buy a seat to see you work live. Now, the relationship between you and those paying customers, I would suggest, is very different to the customers, if you like, or the spectators, who watch you when you've been booked by somebody else. Because whereas in the first lot, they have not been invited specifically necessary to see you, they've just been invited to an event at which you're entertaining. The people who are buying a seat to see your one-man show have made a conscious decision to see you. And they are going to probably evaluate whether you're good value, whether they've enjoyed you. Based on how much they've paid to see you, so if you're a headline act and you charge a lot of money for your seats, say let's say someone like Dynamo when he did his big tour, you could pay quite a lot of money to have a seat to watch one of his shows, and when you go, you'll make a decision at the end of it: was that good value? Did I enjoy that? Yeah, I did a well, bit expensive though wasn't it, or actually, it was fantastic value. We did this, this, and this, it was absolutely brilliant. So you are being judged very much on the merits of your show and of your personality and how you deliver to those people who paid specifically to see you. Now, I'd never really thought about this before. Um, I'd never analyzed what the relationship is between me and the people I'm entertaining because 99 times out of 100, I am booked by somebody by a third party to entertain these people. They're not making that decision. They're not paying me directly. So uh, it was interesting that in our discuss- discussions that Paul had had um, done a couple of festivals where he had put on a one-man show as part of the festival, and people were paying to come and see his magic show. And he was telling me that he felt that it put him under a bit more pressure because he felt there was a, a more of an expectation that he, were, he was going to be judged because people are paid to see him specifically as opposed to going to one of the other acts down the road, as it were, somewhere else in, in the event. And uh, and he felt very aware of that. And until he mentioned it to me, I'd never thought about it. Interesting point, though, isn't it? I'd like to mention now something that uh, I suspect many strolling magicians or table-hopping magicians will be able to relate to. And it's that initial starting moment of an evening, and how you feel just prior to approaching your first group, because when you're, let's say, uh, doing a set show, or you're a cabaret magician, or something like that, you know roughly what time you're going to be on. Let's say you're you're on the nine o'clock slot or something. So you know roughly around that time you're going to be called, and you're going to go out, and the audience will expect you to start and do your show. It it it's there's a, a moment. If there's an MC, he will announce you. There's no turning back. You have to start at that precise moment. But that's not true of strolling magicians. We turn up at venues if it's a big event before most of the guests perhaps have arrived. And if we're not doing the drinks reception, we'll be waiting until they eventually go through and sit down at their tables before approaching a table. So there there can be sometimes, there's a lot of jostling for position when people first go into a big dinner. They've got to find their table. There's all sorts of distracting things on that table. Maybe party poppers if it's Christmas or a special occasion. Sometimes various gifts at the very least. Wine is going to be poured, bread rolls are going to be broken and, and, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of distractions, a lot of things going on. And for the strolling magician, you are standing at the side of the room And basically, you're being completely ignored. Well, why would anybody, other than the fact they might think you're a waiter, why would anybody be looking at you? And yet, you have to sort of screw up your courage, as it were, to do that first table, to, to judge when is the right moment to approach the first group or table. And it's not always totally obvious, you know, you look at one table, and you think, oh, well, there's, I can't go to that one because there are still three or four people missing. So I'll leave that one and you look at another table and they they, they seem very busy pouring wine and, uh, and opening the little gifts on the table. You think, well, that's no good. Uh, and as you look around the room, you think, well, I can't go to that one because this is happening and that's happening there. And that's not in a good position in the room. And it, you suddenly realise that, that you're finding all sorts of reasons why you shouldn't start rather than just getting on with it. And it's the same with mix and mingle events. In fact, in some ways, it's even worse. Because with mix and mingle, say a drinks reception prior to a meal, you've got people arriving, new groups constantly forming, groups splitting up. You know, you can, you say, OK, I'm going to go and see that group of six people over there. You start to walk towards them, and just as you walk towards them, they suddenly, for reasons that you hadn't anticipated, they disperse. And they split up into three twos and all walk off in different directions, leaving you walking towards an empty space. So all these things are going through your mind as you're trying to make a decision, because you know that you want to start well. Not only because anybody who wh- is watching you work wants doesn't want to see you go up to a group and, and die a death, um, you want to them to want you to come to them because you look so good when you were with the other people so from from that point of view you want to start well but I think from your own point of view your own sort of self-confidence because every time you go out to work you are putting yourself up for scrutiny people are going to say well are you any good mate you know, go on then fool me so there is a certain element of that, isn't there? So you want to start well, and starting in the right place with the right group can help a lot to getting you going properly for the evening. So you're standing there and you're thinking, now, nope, not yet, not yet, and you're just about, you're about to to walk out, somebody starts an, an announcement on the microphone, or you start to go towards the table and the, their, their starter suddenly arrives... There are so many reasons why you can't start. And it's easy to panic or to freeze and think to yourself, I can't go anywhere. Well, of course you can. I mean, that's the answer. And once you, you do your first group, and my experience has been that uh, you, you, as long as that goes reasonably well, then you, you, you go off to the next group. And, and quite often you'll, go, you'll be able to find groups for the rest of the evening and you get warmed up. And it's this thing about being warmed up that I think is really important because it's ever so hard to start cold with, a, with a groups who are not settled and it's something that you have to get used to as a strolling magician because you haven't got long to warm them up because you, you're only going to have a few minutes with them. So you need to be warmed up yourself so you hit the ground running and make sure that every group right from that very first one gets the very best show possible. One of the little rituals that I have on a Saturday morning is to go to Duncan Trullo's Magic Week website and have a look at the latest press releases. And down the bottom of the the main page, news page, each time, he puts little teaser links to other magic-related articles that have appeared elsewhere on the web. And occasionally I will follow some of these. And um, recently I followed one. Um, It was an article about somebody called... Dr Kuhn, K-U-H-N, who has been investigating the psychology behind magic. And he's been teaching uh, students how to do magic tricks in order to, so they get to understand what psychological elements are often used when we as performers do our thing. And he's come to various conclusions following uh, quite a long and extensive study of this. And one of the conclusions that he came to, he says that the fact that we know magic is not real is an essential part of making it an enjoyable sensation. So if I understand that correctly, what he's saying is that we need to understand that what the magic tricks or the effects that magicians create Provided that we understand that these things are not real, that they are make-believe, that there is some something behind it, then, as an audience, we will enjoy it more than if we think it's real. Which is uh, interesting. Uh, have you ever thought about that before? I don't think I had. I mean, there are some people who... I suppose basically, there are two different types of people. Some people like to suspend their disbelief. they like to look I know you I know this isn 't real, but you know i 'm just going to go with this i 'm just going to enjoy it for what it is, and they allow you to show them what to them seems impossible things which you make possible, and they love that sensation it 's like being taken back to our childhood when so many things seem magical to us just because we don 't understand them. And I think for adults, we we lose that, and so magic helps to return us to that rather uh, pleasant, and as he would put it, um, an enjoyable sensation. Put take us back to that state. But then there are there are other people for whom they know it's not real. But now that makes means that they are now on a mission to work out how you are doing it. You know the one. They're the ones that burn your hands when you you wait. You're waiting to do a move. And you really don't want them looking at your hands. But they are absolutely determined not to be distracted. And they just keep on looking where you don't want them to look. Um, but these people, for them, that's how they get their fun. That's how they enjoy what you do. And I don't criticise them for that. Because I, mean, I think it, different people have different ways of enjoying the magic that I do. And for some of them, it is trying to work it out. That is all they are interested in and all the lines and all the, the sort of stuff around, all the smoke and mirrors around the actual tricks is irrelevant to them. How is it done? Can I work out how this works? And that's, and that's for them makes it an enjoyable sensation. Which leads you to believe that the people, and I mentioned Yuri Geller earlier on in this podcast, that the people who make claims to be genuinely this or genuinely that, to make claims that they can genuinely read minds, Well, in theory, if that's saying that magic or the magical arts generally are real and that these things are almost supernatural. And if that's the case, according to him, it doesn't make for an enjoyable sensation, which means that the people who make claims like this could be doing themselves a disservice rather than getting people to think, oh, my goodness, you're amazing, they may be having the opposite effect if the psychology of magic, according to Dr. Kuhn is to be believed, because it won't be an enjoyable sensation because they don't they do think it's real and that's an unpleasant or unnerving situation for them to deal with. So I think that's very interesting. Um, and um, you can if you go back to Magic Week two or three weeks uh, back from now, towards the beginning of April, I think it was, and you follow the, uh, the link. You can read the the thing for yourself, the article for yourself, and see what you think. As I'm sure many of you will know, last month we lost Anthony Owen. The shock of somebody so young, just 46 years of age, and so well-known and admired, somebody like that to leave us was, for I think everybody who either knew him or knew of him, quite a shock and very unexpected and it always seems particularly unfair when somebody so young is taken away. Of course Anthony has been around in the magic scene for a very long time. I first came across him when he I think he billed himself as the teenage magician and uh, he used to buy tricks from me in those days and I often wondered what was he going to do when he was no longer a teenager what would he call himself? Because calling yourself the teenage magician only works while you still either are a teenager or you look like one. Well, of course, the answer was that he completely reinvented himself and he went on to have an amazing career, not only for himself with lectures and creating magic, but also helping others, either through his work with the Young Magicians Club initially and Young Magician Competitions, uh, but also through his... um, many television programmes that featured magicians and which his objective productions company had got onto the mainstream television and really made stars of some of the people that he featured. I spoke to Antony at the session, not this year but last year. I think he was doing a lecture that year as well. And um, I had a long chat with him and he was always a very considered a uh, kind person he, he he never really said anything bad about anybody and he was always very stoical about the magic world uh, realistic about it and for somebody who was so successful and had done so much he just had no ego at all he was a very pleasant man to to spend time with and to to lose somebody like that as i say at such a young age is is terrible for everybody obviously particularly for his family who uh you know you cannot believe what they must be going through but i just wanted to say uh, that i will miss him too because and i as i'm sure many others will because he was really one of the good ones i was having a chat on the phone the other day with one of my e club pro members and um this guy was telling me about uh, how over the years he's bought an awful lot of magic and every now and again, he'll go to one of the magical car boot sales and and sell some of it off. And uh, he's had quite a lot of success in passing on some things that he no longer wanted over the years. And he was commenting that increasingly, what's happening is because instructions are no longer being provided on paper, in other words, they're not printed and they're not coming on a DVD, a physical disc, but are just download URLs. It's getting slightly more difficult to sell second-hand products um, on to other people because there are a lot of people who say, "Oh no, I don't want that. I don't want if it's a download. I don't want. I don't want to have that. That link might not work, and they don't trust it in the way if you hand them a disc, even though you know you can put a DVD disc in your player and it doesn't play." but at least you feel like you've got something physical. Whereas when you're trying to buy something second-hand and all you're being handed is a link, the, the, the URL of a link, it, it feels like you, you haven't got something tangible that you could say this doesn't work. And, and it does bring in, and I've talked about this a little bit before, what is the future of the second-hand magic marketplace when so many tricks are supplied as downloads. I mean my entire range is now all download. I don't have any physical products at all. And and a lot of the other magic dealers, even if they have physical products that they're supplying, the instructions will be a video and that video may not always be downloadable. So it always begs the question, well, if it's not downloadable, if it's downloadable, I think that's acceptable because you can download, the customer can download it, keep it on their computer or hard drive. And obviously they're going to have to keep track of where it is. It's easy to lose it. But then you can lose paper instructions, too. So having a folder for your downloadable products is a, should be as simple as having a physical folder that you stick instruction sheets in and put on your bookcase. But nevertheless, ones that, that can't be downloaded um, but can, are simply available online when you type in the password at a particular URL, that seems slightly more nebulous and a bit more dangerous because how long are dealers going to leave these particular things in place? Will they get to a point where they say, well, actually, we've had enough of that now, we'll take that one down? Because the second-hand market, although all the initial sales, all the people who bought it presumably would have watched it, and perhaps if it's something simple, we'll know how it's done anyway. Uh, but if you want to then sell that on, that may not be the case. You may not be able to get access to that particular footage anymore. So it's it's going to be a bit tricky, isn't it, in the second hand market? What are people going to do? I mean, you could, if you had something downloaded, I suppose, print it out if you wanted to. If it was a, a PDF instructions, you could print it out and supply that second hand to a customer, I guess. Um, but otherwise, you are going to possibly have problems with this type of thing, and and I suspect that a lot of the um, secondhand dealers may find a, a downturn in those products which don't come with physical instructions. In which case, their their ranges may gradually in the, in the future start to thin and slim down because there just aren't in any instructions available for any of the current stuff that's coming out. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see what's going to happen in the future. Now I always love this time of year because it's the time again for the 4F's Close Up Magic Convention in the United States. Um, I go most years to this and it's such a blast. I've been going for about, I don't know, a dozen years, something like that. And every time I go I really, really enjoy it. In the past I've often had a dealer stand, I don't have that anymore. Uh, I just go to enjoy the convention, to network and meet friends and, and make new acquaintances and to watch some outstanding magic. It's fascinating to see some of the best close-up magicians in the world all coming together in the one place and strutting their stuff. And whether it's for, in the formal shows or lectures in the in the main sort of room or whether it's the stuff that really genuinely does happen impromptu out in the lobby and late at night in some of the hospitality rooms. It really is a wonderful atmosphere. And I think one of the interesting things is, and I and I know it's very elitist, because you have to be invited to go, and if you are not considered to be of the right standard, you just basically don't get an invite. They limit it to 250 attendees anyway, so it's not limitless space and you so you have to and when you are booked or when you book i should say to go on you are then booked to perform and you will perform at least 3 times each time that you come you may be asked to perform anybody can be asked to, can be asked to perform so it's, it it is there is a certain pressure but it, it, what it does mean is that the the level of knowledge is very high and so where you when lectures and things like this, the where they are pitched can start at a much higher level. When you go to a general magic convention, you may have beginners there, people who have very little experience. And if you're not careful, you can talk over their heads too much and they get nothing out of whatever it is you're talking about or showing them. Whereas at four F's, because the bar has been set a lot higher than that, that the starting point is also higher and you can take it on a lot further as a result. And I think that's what's so attractive about this. You feel like you're, you're mixing with people who have a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge on the whole. And that's exciting in itself. And, and 4Fs are very clever, the way they organize it. They It's almost like they make you feel like you're part of a club, a special group of people. And that's what keeps bringing people back. And people like me, spending a ridiculous amount of money just to go to a magic convention, because you want to stay part of that club, and it is a fantastic buzz every time that you go. And so I'm going next week. I'm really looking forward to it, and I'm hoping that it's going to be uh, as good as it's been, and every other year that I've been. I'm sure it will be. Right. Well, thank you so much for listening to the May podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the various things that I've had a chat about, and I will be putting my thinking cap on and hopefully coming up with some more interesting topics for next time. In the meantime, have a good month. Bye for now.